Hey, this episode is brought to you by Lululemon Men's Underwear. I've been wearing Lululemon Men's Underwear since 2009. It's a true story. It's the best men's underwear, and if you disagree, I will fight you. Check out the new Always in Motion boxer made with silky and supportive Modal fabric. Available in three packs. Find them in Lululemon stores or online at lululemon.com. Okay, let's start the show. My name is Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. We are back from a little summer hiatus, and we've got some killer guests lined up over the next several months. The first of which, my guest today, Ari Halper, Chief Creative Officer at FCB New York. Prior to that, Ari spent 13 years as ECD of Gray New York. Over the past decade plus, Ari has made some of the most memorable and iconic work in our industry. He fathered the E-Trade Baby. On behalf of the nonprofit States United to prevent gun violence, he helped create the incredibly powerful gun store. He's done Super Bowl ads for E-Trade and Bud Light and Lipton. He's won every major award in the industry, and that was before his most recent seismic success of this past year, Burger King's Whopper Detour, the most awarded idea in the world at this year's Can Lion, and a new creative beacon for agencies and brands everywhere. He's a proud Syracuse Orangeman, a father of three, and a food blogger. His work has been making me jealous for years. This is Ari Halper and I talking to ourselves. So the folklore goes from doing a little research on you. You went on 50 interviews before landing your first job. I'm calling bullshit on that number. That's no, a fake number. No, no, it's 50. I counted. <laughs> 50 interviews. Yep. Now, did, did you set out on a mission to try to have as many conversations as possible, or were you just getting repeatedly rejected? <laughs> Probably a combination of both. I, I wound up uh, interning at a few places, uh, paid internships even, but until I actually got the job, I mean, I would go on a lot of informational interviews. I would send a lot of um, like self-promotion ideas, just little kits, not the actual book. And the mail, this is back when you actually sent a physical book as opposed to a website. And that would get me the meeting. I'd get my foot in the door and I'd meet them. And invariably, invariably, I'd always hear the same thing. It's like, oh, you got good stuff, but unfortunately, there's nothing open right now, uh, which basically, I think, in hindsight, is code for keep working on your book. Yeah. And so I did. I just kept working on my book and working on my book until I got my first break in New York at Darcy. So it, it wasn't about like, man, at 30 rejections, let's start thinking about a backup plan. My mom tells me this accounting thing's not so bad. <laughs> your, your, your feeling was just stay at it. Eventually, I'm going to get a yes. Uh, well, I am a bit relentless in that way. Uh, I, I don't know if that comes from my mom or my dad, but I, I, I did keep at it. I kept revising my book. I, I believed eventually I would get my break. But to your point, I, I did start thinking about backups. Believe it or not, nutritionist was uh, one of the backups. I was fascinated with nutrition and the way vitamins and minerals and all these different things work. So uh, I started to look into continuing education and nutrition. It's what I love about this industry. I mean, you've talked about, you know, being a vet, being a cartoonist, being an architect. I think what this profession has going for it more than anything is that you can, whatever those qualities of the things that you thought you wanted to be, you can find in this profession. And in fact, like if you can lean into those things, it's what makes you the only you in the industry, um, you know, versus like, well, if I you know study these ten ads and and like there's there's no classical training. The less classical your training, maybe the more the more sort of unique your perspective will be. Totally, Dan Wyden has an amazing quote, which is, "Don't try to make ads; put yourself into the work." Right. And I think that's what happens invariably is you you take all these experiences and uh, unique attributes of yourself, and they wind up coming out in weird unusual ways. Yeah. Did you have a did you have a big sort of first break in terms of a campaign that helped put you on the map? Um I would say the biggest one, biggest break was probably the E-Trade baby. Yeah. And that was I mean, I'm trying to put a date on that. That's like 2010, 2008. 2008. Okay. Yep. Super Bowl 2008. Uh, and you were at Gray for 13 years. Did you were you hired by Tor or did, did he come after you? No, he came several years after me. I was hired by a man named Jonathan Rogers in 2003. Okay, 2003. And then Tor Mirren is there for the E-Trade baby, if I recall correctly. Yes, he, he arrived in 2007 and it was one of the first pitches that we did with him. What was your early impression when he shows up to the agency? Did you sort of, did you see a certain magic or electricity? Were you skeptical of him when he first showed up? Um. 
new boss. Well, I, I would say in, in ver- inherently at, at Gray at the time, everybody's skeptical of anybody trying to turn that agency around because no one had ever done it. But he did. He had a different energy about him. He was way more collaborative and in the trenches than any CCO I had ever worked with. He was very casual and approachable, easy to talk to. And he – we, my partner and I at the time, a guy named Steve Kraus, we – hit it off with him instantly and he put us on the the E-Trade pitch because at the time they had a, the, the gist of a campaign but the problem was is they didn't have a Super Bowl spot and the client was very reticent to leave BBDO without a killer Super Bowl spot. So we worked on it and we came up with the E-Trade baby and the rest was history. <laughs> so so Super Bowl, E-Trade baby, E-Trade baby, Bud Light, Lipton. So you know, you've done about a half dozen Super Bowl spots. As you look back, um, in what ways does the approach to a Super Bowl brief uh, change the creative process? You know, just in terms of the pressure that's applied and the budget that's ap- applied. Do you try to do you try to compartmentalize that, or are you are you sort of vividly aware that this is not just like any other brief when you approach a Super Bowl opportunity? I definitely say the latter. Vividly yeah. aware. Uh, I think sometimes pressure is good. Uh, it lets you know that the bar is higher. Uh, I think it, uh, a lot is motivated uh, under under pressure. And then I think the audience is also something that's very different. It's one of those rare times when people are actually actively paying attention to the commercial versus skipping over it, DVRing it, half paying attention, going into the kitchen to do something else. So that is an added bonus. You also have, I would say, a more... Uh, mass audience than probably anything else. Like sometimes the programming is very niche and so you get a certain type of viewer versus pretty much everybody's watching the Super Bowl on the face of the earth. So you've got everything from kids to urban to rural to uh, suburbia. So you want something that also will genuinely be a crowd pleaser. It is interesting. I mean, if I hadn't really thought of it that way. It is one of the is it's maybe the only time of year that the television ad is not viewed as, you know, a disruptive agent, but it's viewed as part of the entertainment. Um, so I mean, the, my question was like, does do Super Bowl spots still matter in the way that they did ten or twenty years ago? But it seems like maybe the the formula hasn't really changed. It, as long as it remains part of the overall entertainment package, then it, it does still matter. Would you agree with that? I would, although there is a new player in the market. I would say that the Oscars have become the new Super Bowl. I think the quality of those ads tend to be even better. Typically, I think because there is a slight shift in the audience, you don't necessarily have kids. So the humor is a little bit more clever and less slapstick. Um, the audience has a more of an appreciation for art and yeah. filmmaking and storytelling. So I, I think it is – another Super Bowl-like object where people have gotten to the point where they look forward to watching the ads on the Oscars as well. But I'd say the level of them is also significantly higher. It's funny you say that because that's a pretty new phenomenon, but it's really obvious in hindsight. Now you go like, well, of course. And in fact, you've got the biggest movie stars in the world who are now more than ever open to doing advertising. It doesn't sort of like besmirch their, you know, their um, their career as it as it as they've sort of you know perceived it to do twenty years ago, um, and it allows us to sort of indulge our greatest filmmaking fantasies in a responsible way. It's really funny that it took so long for us to figure that out as an opportunity because that that feels less than five years old. Is like, hey, this is an advertising moment as much as it's, it's a pop culture moment. Totally, yeah. I would I would agree with that. Um, you know, big agencies have runs. Thinking about Gray and thinking about. Um, you working with Tor and all the success that you guys enjoy together. Um, so that, you know, they have runs and then they have regime changes and, you know, both can be incredibly healthy uh, for the agency and for the parties that were there. Um, how much longer after he left did you stay and and what eventually attracted you to what you uh, uh, charmingly called your home, <laughs> CB, New York? <laughs> well, I spend probably more time there than home, so that's <laughs> probably why I did it. Uh, I actually left about Two months after Tor left, but not because Tor left. Things were already kind of in the motions before he had announced the news that he was going to Apple. 
And it wasn't necessarily motivated by his leaving. It was motivated more by the fact that I had been in ECD for I think it was like seven to nine years at that point. And I craved what was next. And I was being pursued by a few different agencies at the time. And I was attracted to FCB for a a host of of variables and, and took the leap to see if I could do it again, turn around an agency, but as the CCO this time. You know, it, it, it brings up a great question. You know, you said you were in ECD for seven to nine years. You know, our industry is fueled by ambitious people. Um, and and we're always looking for that next challenge. And sometimes we're looking for that next challenge before we've, you know, maybe fully a- accomplished the challenge that's in front of us. I'm sure those calls didn't start coming only seven or nine years later. When did you know that the time was right? When did you, did you feel like you were waiting your turn? Were you waiting for the right thing? Were you waiting for you know the right energy from the person on the other on the on the on the other line? How did you know that the time was right? I would say it's a bit of a combination of several of the things that you mentioned, and I'll admit that you don't really know. Right. <laughs> it's a bit of a leap of faith. I, I think the stars ultimately need to align to some degree, and it has to be the right cast of characters. It has to be an opportunity where you truly have the ability to make change. There are several things along the way that ultimately fell apart for various reasons that I was disappointed at the time, but in hindsight, looking back, I clearly dodged a bullet. So I think it's important to realize that ultimately you'll find your path if you have faith enough in yourself and your abilities, regardless of what happens. But uh, I definitely think that Looking to move just to move is is a dangerous mindset out of, when you move out of desperation or um, other things. It can ultimately create the wrong motivations for moving, and it helps to do it with a clear head. So the things that ultimately did push it over the top for me at the time, a the CSO at that agency who had just started was someone who I had worked with in, the, in my past, a woman named Deb Freeman who I had worked really well with. So I knew I would have someone who was cut from the same cloth as me, who thought like me. So I would have someone in the trenches who I knew and trusted. That was a huge part of it. Uh, I really hit it off with Susan Cradle, the global chief creative officer, and Carter Murray, the global CEO. And they both seemed very incredibly supportive and and transparent and honest with them, even themselves about how challenging the task was ahead of them because I do fear that a lot of CCOs are hired and brought into a place and expected to turn it around in 12 to 18 months and I don't right. think that that's particularly realistic. So Carter and Susan, to their credit, uh, it may have been horribly scary for them, uh, gave me three years to turn it around and I've talked to a lot of other CCOs who – have turned around agencies, and they all say it takes about three years. Right. Well, I can corroborate what you're saying. I had uh, Susan on the show maybe seven months ago, and what really struck me about her is just her kind of radical vulnerability and honesty and candor um, and her ability to sort of take a beat when she's asked a question. And I think we all kind of have some preloaded safe answers to things, and it's kind of fun to watch her, you know, let that load up and then discard it and find what she really wants to say. Um, uh-huh. And and it was it was sort of uncanny in a way that I've never seen in any other guest. Um, you know, at different large agencies, I see this working as part of McCann World Group, the relationship between the global CCO and the North American CCO and regional CCOs and office CCOs, it's, it's different depending on the players um, involved. For you, what is that relationship like between Susan, who is the global CCO, and you, who, are, who is the CCO of the New York office, especially in light of the fact that I, I believe she's based in New York, so I'm sure she probably sees a lot more of you than you know the CCO in Brazil or the CCO in London. It's kind of the irony. She jokes about it a lot with me is that I'm right across the hall and she sees me less than a lot of other offices. Um, I think because you take for granted that convenience sometimes. But as far as her role, I mean, she steps in as needed. Uh, Sometimes on bigger like global pitches. uh, Ultimately, if I just want her advice on something, I can, you know, walk across the hall or call her up, uh, ask for her thoughts on a matter. 
Um, she helps with getting us connections to clients who she might have from her past to get her foot in the door uh, again for, for new business. I mean, that's, I would say, the majority of it. She also, she set forth, this is for all offices, not just specifically to New York, uh, set forth certain tools and philosophies to unite the network because everything was working uh, more on a one-off basis from office to office. So she united us under one culture, which I think was also pretty huge. Yeah. Um, you got the job because you've had an incredible career as a creative and as you've progressed, you've taken on more management responsibilities, you know, gradually over the course of, you know, a decade. Um, have you found it challenging at all now in this new role where maybe you have an arm's length from the creative process at times and you're realizing that a huge part of your job is, you know, talent and making sure that you're the right amount of accessible and putting structures in place and, and um, you know, cultivating systems. Has that come naturally to you or... or Deep down, do you kind of are you most comfortable with ideas on a wall? <laughs> uh, well, being the type A, type B person, it definitely helped for sure. Uh, having a, a more business mind in the back of my head, uh, it's definitely hard. Uh, some things that two things that uh, I can think of that helped immensely. One was executive coaching, which is something that I had asked of Tor a while back. He had offered it up to me, and I took him up on it. A woman named Tricia Scudder. I can't even express enough how life-changing it was for me. It helped me find my weaknesses, my demons, solve for them, and become a stronger, better manager to be able to communicate still forcefully what I want to say, but without some of the negative blowback that sometimes it comes yeah. with. And the other thing that was huge is that when, you, when you're a CCO, even though I was uh, – sorry, when, I'm, when you're an ECD, you think that the CCO is a similar job, just bigger. And you know, now you've got all the accounts. And maybe you do some more interviews. You sit on a few juries in award shows. I wasn't – prepared for what a quantum leap it was for with all the different things that you had to contend with and do. Uh, I would say a huge chunk of your job is HR. huge chunk of your job is new business. A huge chunk of your job is the culture of the agency, the vision of the agency. And then there's the creative product and managing the, the teams and yada, yada. And what's strange is, is that as an ECD at Gray, my team when I left was about twice the size of my team when I got to FCB. Right. So I thought that it was going to be easy. But it wasn't because you wind up getting so distracted and the creative product wound up becoming maybe 25% of my job, which is when Susan ultimately stepped in and she said, listen, you need to take all that other shit off your plate and just focus on the work. You've got to turn around the work first. Once the work is there, everything else will start falling into place. And it, it, it's funny. Tor used to say the exact same thing. He would say, great work fixes everything. And it's true. It ultimately brings in better talent. It brings in better clients, which helps your new business stream. That all affects morale. And then you have a lot less problems to contend with that we're eating up your bandwidth to focus on the work in the first place. Yeah. It's really hard to take the 30,000 foot view and think about sort of nebulous concepts like vision, you know, and, and sort of the three-year trajectory. And it's like, that's great. There's a meeting in two days. <laughs> and if this meeting doesn't go well, it's going to be a fucking disaster for everybody. And I think, yeah, you're, you're pulled in so many directions and everyone sort of needs something from you. And if you can get good at saying no to the things that aren't necessarily unimportant, but to, to your point, I think it's actually the biggest sort of cause and effect, which is in that first year or two, if you can just focus on elevating the work to a degree that all of a sudden maybe creatives who weren't previously thinking about your agency as a place to take the next big step in their career are calling you and emailing you instead of you emailing them. Now you're all, you're, you're suddenly cooking a little bit and and then – you know, as you surround yourself with talent that you trust, trust means, I mean, I hate to put it so glibly, but I feel like trust, trust is you represent 
15 meetings I don't have to go to this year. And that's not about laziness. That's about like for me to be sitting next to this person who I just hired when I trust them fully and when they've earned that trust just makes me redundant in that room. And in fact, almost like undercuts their authority in that room. Um, and so it seems like that's where you guys have gotten to now where, you know, you sort of surrounded yourself with people who've, who've earned that trust and it allows you to actually do the job that sits above the emergency, you know. Exactly. Um, when you get to a new place like FCB and, you know, I'm, I'm guessing Susan certainly helped with this. You've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's an agency that's been around for a long time. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about sort of how to diplomatically impose your new way uh, versus being open to elements of the previous way, <laughs> you know, and being open to the idea that like maybe there are there are things that they were doing here that I haven't done in 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 previous jobs, but you know I'm I'm open to the possibility that that doesn't necessarily need fixing. Sure, this one's a, a, a touchy one because I would say coming in, we did it horribly wrong. Uh, we came in actually as a triumvirate, as they, they called it. It was a new CEO, a new CSO, and a new CCO, myself, pretty much all at the same time. CEO and I started on the same day. The CSO, the person who I come to work with, started like a month or two prior to that. When we all got there, we very much had – that mindset, we're going to come in and change this place and fix it and whip it into shape. And I think there was culture shock in both directions. And I think there was a uh, tone deafness to the way in which we came in because the people working there, first of all, the agency had been around over 100 years. So obviously they're doing something right. Uh, and then they had also gone through, I think it was not at that point, nine C-suite changes in 10 years up until that point. So there's always a healthy degree of skepticism to anyone walking in the door in the C-suite. But also I would have to believe some element of survival mode is just, OK, this too shall pass. Let's just focus on our jobs at hand, our clients, keep them happy, and yeah. they'll figure this it out. This is the part where he says that everything's going to change. And then this is the part where he's like, they've heard this, no matter how good you are at the speech, no matter how sincere you're being, they've heard a version of that at least a half dozen times by virtue of just, you know, the revolving door of leadership. Exactly. And I think it took us falling on our face, just flat out failing hard on that and them reject, you know, the, the body rejecting the organ, so to speak. And then we ultimately backed off. And I don't know how much of a bull in a china shop I came in. I came in definitely wanting to up the game of the work. I wanted to see less filmic solves for everything and, uh, get the agency to solve problems more non-traditionally. I wanted more collaboration from other departments in the creative product. But those things were slow going regardless. Uh, like I said, there just was a resistance at get-go and I think partly because of the tenor that we started the conversation with. And then after about a year and a half to two years, I think people started to gel a little bit and realize that, okay, they seem to be around a little bit longer than we expected. <laughs> so let's see where things are going. And then it was really the uh, end of the uh, – getting towards the end of the third year, sorry, the end of the third year, like the last half of it, that things really started to gel. Good work started to come out. And we had hired an, enough new people, either people left or were let go or whatever, and we had enough people who genuinely believed in what we were trying to do. I, I like to say we had more people pedaling forwards than pedaling backwards at this point. And we managed to to get the work to where we needed to be. And it's a, a bit of luck, uh, a bit of having a great client a la – uh, Burger King, a la LG, a la FDA, um, you know, entrusting us on some big swings. And 
you know, I, I, I do think that not enough CCOs give credit to luck. Or people, not just CCOs, I would say anyone in the C-suite give credit to luck because a massive amount of it is required in order to pull off what we did. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the argument for like, just keep coming back. Oh, man, you got some really bad news. Just keep coming back. We lost a client. Just keep, if you just keep coming back and if your heart is in the right place and if your work ethic is in the right place, like just by the law of averages, bad luck will eventually turn to good luck, you know, and it might it might be a global phenomenon and, and lightning in a bottle. And we'll get to Whopper Deesher, which I think, you know, we can sort of safely call, you know, a, a major sort of lightning in a bottle moment. Um, before I ask, before we talk about that, though, I'm curious, were there any you know, creatives or team members when you join that you remember, you know, others sort of writing off as like, well, <clears throat> that guy's a malcontent. Guy's got a bad attitude. That guy's not in it for the long haul. And now you look up, you're what, five years into the job? And you go like, that guy has actually turned out to be my favorite person. Maybe that guy had a bad attitude because he, he or she wasn't set up for success. And now they're they're flourishing in a different, they're in a way that, you know, um, you know, there was a side of them that was dormant that has sort of been unlocked. Have you have you experienced that at all? For sure. And actually, I do want to give a shout out to the teams that were involved in all three of the projects that, that I mentioned, um, Whopper Detour, the LGB and Binge, and uh, One Leaves, which was a video game we created with Xbox for FDA. All three of those were done by people who were already there when I got there. There's only about five or six from when I arrived uh, who, who are still there, but all five or six were involved in the things that were our, our biggest hits from this last year. And uh, one of the creatives who I'll, I'll call out as far as uh, I'll say wasn't delivering to their potential, and I, I did. I sat him down. I had a conversation with him, uh, this guy named Justin. And I gave him a heart-to-heart and told him my expectations, and he just – rose to the occasion. I guess no one had ever bothered to talk to him about it. But he is literally one of my my favorite people. He's one of the hardest working people in the agency before he was going home at like five or six when other people were there till like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And now he's he's the one there until 10, o'clock, uh, 10 11 o'clock at night. Not that I judge uh, productivity or- Young creatives, <laughs> the way to succeed is to work until 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't uh, judge it by that, but I do judge the degree of of care or self motivation. Is that obviously, if you're there that late, it's indicative of of your mindset, your demeanor. You care. You you want to succeed. You you know you're ambitious and hungry. And it was a very different mindset for him. Yeah. So I think that's a great segue into you know five years into the job and the work steadily improves and in the third year you start to see work maybe getting recognized in a way um, that that's that's you know elevated from when you first started and then you have this sort of moment of culmination uh, this past year with Whopper Detour which you know I'm gonna safely assume was the most awarded idea in the world this year across all the shows. For anyone who wants to really deep dive into the genesis of the idea, I encourage them to read. Uh, a May 17th ad week article written by Burger King CMO, Fernando Machado. It's called The Inside Story of Whopper Detour. Uh, and in that um, article, Fernando calls Whopper Detour the determining moment for the brand. He says, it marks a turning point in our marketing and shows what we believe the future of great creativity might be, a future where creativity is used for responding to real, tangible business and brand goals. For a guy like that, this was, you know, so every, anyone can get lucky once. Some people can get lucky twice. This guy has been has been you know at the helm of some of the great advertising of the past seven years. And for him to say, you know, this is the idea that it's a culmination for your agency and it's a culmination for him as well. I'm wondering if you can go back a little bit. I, it, it gets into it in the article. It's a great article. I really encourage people to read it from the perspective of the CMO. But from the perspective of the CCO, can you just tell me a little bit about the early days of what became Whopper Detour? Sure. Well, uh, we had been in conversations with Fernando for some time. Uh, Susan had hit it off uh, with him. I think they both sat on a jury together. And we've been talking about trying to do a project with him for a while. And it had really gone nowhere. And then one day, 
during one of our what we call lunch and learns, we bring in different companies to talk to the agency and inspire them about what's possible through various platforms like, for example, Waze. So Waze came in and they talked to us about a bunch of ideas uh, on how to use the platform. And One of our teams was really inspired and came up with an idea that they thought of for a QSR. It wasn't necessarily Burger King yet, but was what if you ultimately could reward people for passing a competitor? And so we dug into Burger King since we had had this relationship uh, with Fernando and we created what was called the Extra Mile Whopper. And the idea was to, using Waze, it would log every McDonald's that you passed in order to get to Burger King because there are twice as many McDonald's as there are Burger Kings, meaning that you have to go that much further, the extra mile, in order to get a Whopper. So why not reward people for driving past the McDonald's for their patronage to a Burger King by discounting the Whopper for every McDonald's that they passed? And that was the first idea. And we ultimately asked for a meeting with him. He kindly accepted. And he saw the idea and he goes, eh. I, you know, it's something interesting there with the geofencing aspect of it. And I like, you know, the insight behind it of, uh, about rewarding people for going the extra mile in order to get the Whopper. But the idea needs more voltage, uh, literally his words quoting him. So we went back to the drawing board and almost like uh, a writer's room, we would sit down and, and concept all together as a team. And... In one of those meetings, this guy named Laszlo, uh, he's Hungarian, he ultimately, like lightning shooting through the roof of the building, shot up in the middle of the room, hands wide, eyes like deer in the headlights, and he goes, what if we sold a special Whopper that you could only order from McDonald's? And we're like, how would that even be possible? And he goes, geofencing. But instead of geofencing us, we geofence them. And myself and the ECD, uh, which is uh, Gabriel Schmidt, instantly were like, holy shit, that's it. So we ultimately brought it back to the client. At this time, the name was now The Secret Whopper. And it was exactly as we said, although it worked through ways, is that we geofenced a, a radius around every McDonald's in, in the country through ways. And then when you, in, when you were inside the geofenced zone, you could order this secret off-menu Whopper that was a special build. And uh, then you would have to go pick it up at Burger King. He... Uh, he immediately loved it. It was actually presented by Gabriel uh, to Fernando. And it was funny. Uh, I'll, I'll quote Gabriel when he says that the client he thought didn't like the idea and that he had lost them immediately because as soon as he presented it, Fernando immediately picked up the phone and made a call. So I thought, oh, God, he hates it. He's off in another world. He was actually calling his tech people to see whether or not this was a possible. He wow, right ar- there. Right there on the spot. He loved it that much. That's he was trying to figure great. out how to pull it off. So then it became a massive story, a, a war of attrition, trials and tribulations, figuring out how to circumnavigate all the legal issues, the tech issues, um, operational issues, of which there were an infinite amount. And one of them was can't do a special build on on the burger. It has to be just a regular old Whopper. If we try to do that, the operational challenge of that alone will kill this idea. So just make it a Whopper that you can get like for free or for one cent or something like that. Like, okay. And he said, I also don't like the name, Secret, Secret Whopper. So we started going round and round and round on names. And I'll shit you not, we were in a car on our way to a different shoot for a different client. Uh, it was myself, another ECD, and a producer uh, named Jillian. And we're all 
tossing around ideas and literally going back and forth texting Gabe. Uh, he's texting me lines that the team came up with and he came up with. I'm texting him lines that I came up with. Uh, Gary, the other ECD in the car, is tossing out ideas that he has for the name. And then the producer goes, what about Whopper Detour? And I was like, holy shit, that's it. <laughs> Just like I did with Lava. Give me a, give me a, run, <laughs> a runner-up name that you thought was good until you heard Whopper Detour. And now you look back and you're like, that was actually not a great name. Uh, I won't I, – I, I can't give you that, but I will give you the runner-up name for the client. He wanted to call it the Whopper. APP being big, app, because it was about the app, the, the updated app and the new app and you order through the app and everything like right. that. So ultimately, uh, we did have a heart-to-heart. Uh, I remember it very vividly. I was in my, uh, I was in my house on a weekend, and uh, it was just Fernando and I on the phone, and I was pleading with him not to call it the Wapper. Right. I said any idea could for the app could be the Wapper. This speaks to the functionality of the idea, the craziness of going over here and then having to go back there to the McDonald's. Detour is so much better. And ultimately, he said, you know what? I, I see your passion. I'm going to trust you on it. Right. And he, he rolled with it, and the rest is history. Um, you've talked about the role of luck, and, and I would add to that you know, talent, obviously, and then persistence and perseverance and luck. Those are sort of the four ingredients to a successful career. And we've talked about luck and you know, an idea like that wouldn't exist without talent. And you just spoke to the persistence, perseverance portion of it, which are the two hardest ingredients. You know, I've heard it said, I think it's so genius that like a great idea is like a carton of milk on the counter and you take it out and you put it on the counter and it's cold and it's ready to pour over cereal and everyone's excited. And the longer it sits out, it starts to get warm and it starts to get smelly. And sometimes when a brief comes in and you only have two weeks or three weeks, it's the greatest gift we have because there's no time for swirl. Yeah. And so I just wonder if you can talk a little bit, you know, the now you're infiltrating their app. You're talking to people in their organization who are who are, you know, divorced from the creative process and are tech people who maybe don't share Fernando's vision or don't, you know, don't even fully understand the idea that you're that you're trying to sort of indoctrinate them to champion. Um and a year is going by. How, you know, and and I think I I guess the other p- point is like the idea stays internal for so long and people on the agency side and the brand side, you start, you know, it feels like it happened already. You start to get bored with your own idea and you forget the lightning bolt that shot through your body, you know, the first time you heard it and you forget that that's how it's going to be for people the first time they hear it in a year. So how do you maintain that enthusiasm? I mean, is that a big part of your job is on the agency side and the brand side, just like fucking reminding people that this is good. Don't forget that feeling you first felt. Huge. And for me, it's, it is somewhat ingrained in my DNA. I'm actually on the cusp of Aries and Taurus. So you got a bull and a ram. It's a pretty stubborn amalgamation of beasts. So I'm pretty relentless in that regard. I mean, you look at the uh, my path in to get my first job and now here many years later. You're a stubborn bastard. <laughs> I'm a stubborn bastard. And I think it was the fact that I had teamed up with a couple of other stubborn bastards. I had Fernando. I had Marcelo, uh, who is uh, Fernando's number two at Burger King. I had uh, Gabriel, uh, who's the ECD. So it was just a, um, a relentless mindset to not let this die. We all knew we were on to something great. And Susan also, she has a, uh, a great mindset when it comes to awards. And I, I think it's a healthy mindset, which is, is that awards are part of the journey but not the destination. And so she doesn't believe in rushing an idea just to hit awards. Like we, it was supposed to have gone in Can 2018. But it was more important to all of us to do it right and to make sure that the tech was behind it, to make sure obviously we had done the legal due diligence because that could go really sideways. And everybody was pretty lockstep in that we were still going to make this happen. The only thing, truth be told, that I think all all of us, especially myself, were fearful of was someone else beating us to it. Fortunately, <laughs> I think it was so batshit crazy and so difficult to pull off, which is why maybe no one beat us to it. But 
that was that was really the I think the scariest thing. But it's definitely a true dynamic that the longer something sits around, that typically people fall out of love with it. But uh, I think that we had enough like-minded people that wouldn't let that happen. So, you know, the idea, you know, the idea just completely fires through pop culture in a way that you know is even unprecedented for Burger King that you know makes a regular habit of getting their work on the Today Show and and across all these press outlets. Um, and so you're experiencing this incredible success from this idea. And now, you know, I'm sitting on juries at award shows and I'm watching the case study. And, I, and I've watched that case study, you know, two dozen times on various award shows. And, and I show it to, you know, our teams and I know other creative leaders at other agencies do as well because it is so hard to make the thing itself. And your reward for making the thing itself is now you have to figure out how to tell the story of it in two minutes in a way that does it justice. Um, I would say to any creative out there who's part of their you know, responsibility is creating great case studies for the campaigns that they make to watch this case study. It is a masterpiece separate of the concept itself. Can you talk? Because I think it's hard. At the end of an idea, you're fucking tired. You know, like mission accomplished. It 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 shot through the world. You know, it bounced all around the internet. Everyone saw it. Millions of people wrote about it, and and it was beloved. And now you, your reward is you get to start all over and make this new thing. That's an ex, that's the ultimate expression of it. Um, can you talk about the process of the of the case study? You know, and how difficult that was to create. Sure. Uh, to to be fair, I think the case study was probably every bit as hard, if not even harder, right. than Whopper Detour itself. Harder in that you had less time to do it because we were at that point we were trying to hit deadlines for award shows. Um, hard in that you have to distill what took a year to put together into two minutes. <laughs> And I'm glad that ultimately uh, that that's the takeaway of, of the case study because truth be told, I think a lot of us internally were like, okay, it's as good as it's going to be at this point. <laughs> like we didn't feel like we had it as nailed as we wanted it to going out the door. It was as nailed as we could get it by the time the deadline hit. And ultimately, literally, there, were, there was talk. I won't say who said what, but there were, there were people who saying – this isn't a Grand Prix worthy case study. Wow. So obviously, in hindsight, they were wrong. Um, but, you know, we were killing ourselves uh, night after night after night, crazy long hours, uh, sweating over every detail, redoing the structure of it. Uh, I can't even, uh, there easily must have been close to 200 versions because not only was there the version of the master and there were several, uh, I don't know, there's like it's, it's, a hundred iterations of at least that. But then there's all the versions for the different juries. So we had a design one and we had a out-of-home one and a mobile one and a direct one and an integrated one. And to be fair, I didn't love that part of the process. Uh, I'll be transparent here in saying that I feel like we have lost the plot a little bit when totally. we're spending more time and energy on the case study than on the idea. I mean, ideally, shouldn't a jury of your peers be able to just know the idea on a piece of paper, to, so to speak, or know of the idea uh, in some other facet and be like, Genius, that deserves an award. That one doesn't. But it's become such an art unto itself, as you've already mentioned, that we spend as much time on the case study. And sometimes the case study is more award-winning than the idea yeah. because the case study is, can be so killer. And so we wind up obsessing on that piece, which doesn't pay the bills in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. You're taking all these resources away from working on other things, paying clients to work on this um, this thing that is really just to put out there as a retrospective of what you did that everybody already hopefully knows and hope that that is going to glean awards and attention to ultimately maybe lead to new business on the back end. It's 
it's daunting and frustrating, and it was probably the most brutal part of the entire process, even more than dealing with the lawyers. Man, I appreciate your honesty on that. It's, it, it's, an, it's an impossible contradiction to reconcile. On the one hand, it feels masturbatory and it feels yeah. grody, and you're right. It's not like, well, maybe I'll just not you know, do the, the work for paying clients today. The answer is like, no, you're going to do that, and then this is this whole other job. You know, tell them what they've won, Johnny. You've won the right to have a second full-time job creating this video. Yep. On the other hand, you've been in this business long enough to know that these moments don't come around very often, and you exactly. don't want to feel like you're squandering an opportunity to, you know, you're you're running an agency, but there's people who've worked on that piece of work, and you know that will be the defining moment of their young careers, um, that will change the tra trajectory of their careers as well, and so. You know, it feels totally unimportant, and it feels like the most important thing you'll ever do. And it's two contradictory thoughts happening at the exact same time. You know, well said. Um, it's a good transition into judging shows. Um, you know, I know you've judged quite a few shows, and I've done, I've tried to do more over the past few years, and it's a big time commitment. Um, and we can sort of have various reasons for why we do it, and we can convince ourselves that it, you know, it raises our profile in the industry. And in some cases, that's true, and in other cases, it's bullshit. You know, when you accept an invitation to judge an award, uh, an award show, what are you hoping to get out of it? Why do you say yes? Uh, I'd say it's a, a few different reasons. Uh, some you already stated. Uh, one of the biggest reasons, uh, one of my favorite things to do in the, in the industry is talk about the work. And I do also, I, I know that it, it matters to a lot of people. It, it, it matters to me. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but... I think that it's important that people really get someone in the room who has integrity and wants just the best work to survive. So I like to make sure that I'm on the jury because I'm not swayed by politics. I don't care who did the work, not internally or externally. And I feel like we want more of that in the jury space. There's a lot of cases, I think, where things have won because of uh, jury room deals or um, because of the name on the work as opposed to the idea itself. And uh, so I, what I try to get out of it is integrity. I love talking about the work. Like I said, I love helping to uh, award the things that are deserving for those who are out there sort of giving back to the industry. Um, and then, like I said, uh, a lot of the things that you said, I think also factor into it. Do you ever struggle when you're reviewing work from your teams not to constantly go? Because at the end of the day, you start to, you start to, you know, sort of develop this, this library and this file cabinet of, pa of previous award winners in your head. It's really hard for me not to put everything in the context of, Good or bad, I'll go. Oh, this actually reminds me of a thing that was, you know, from Brazil two years ago. Or let's not do this thing because this resembles this other thing. But it's really hard, difficult for me not to put everything in the context of a case study that I saw. And I can almost see sometimes teams really like it because they just don't have that that file cabinet in their brains. And other times I could see them sort of roll their eyes. I mean, <laughs> do, do you struggle not to co constantly bring bring up other ideas in the creative direction of ideas in front of you? I actually don't struggle. I do do it a lot, but uh, I don't have the internal conflict with it. They may roll their eyes, but I don't want to be called out as a copycat or be de too derivative. Um, I, I think everybody steals from one another and from other uh, areas of uh, entertainment and culture, but... I think it, it's wise to just be mindful of what's gone before you so you don't act like this is the second coming and then ideally not present it to a client who actually knows the idea right. and goes, okay, but isn't this exactly like yada yada? And then you look like a fool in the room. So I, I try to bring it up because I see it more as a blind spot than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's on, the positive side of it is like you have to study greatness to know greatness, to to do greatness. Um, and then the other side of it is you're right. It's you're doing it to protect yourself. And because as creative people, we just don't want to be accused of being thieves. Yeah. Um, you know, I love the story of you and Fernando talking on the phone over the weekend. It speaks to how much you care and how much he cares. Uh, and Fernando is a certain type of CMO. 
For sure. Um, and there are other types of CMOs, you know, positive and negative. Everyone talks a good game about wanting to do groundbreaking work and wanting to do things that are original. And some people live it more than others. Um, the interaction with CMOs and the ability, I don't want to say to sell work to CMOs, but the ability to get CMOs to buy into an idea is a big part of the job of the CCO. Um, and it can be intimidating and walking into corporate headquarters where, you know, you don't have all the information. You don't totally grasp maybe all of the stresses in that person's life or what they're up against. Um, does that part come naturally to you? Do you enjoy the challenge of developing trusting relationships with, with the CMOs and, and getting them to buy into ideas? For sure. I mean, that's, I would say the new type of creativity for a CCO is creatively figuring out how you're going to ultimately sell an idea and get someone to take the leap. And I've done it a few times in, in my day, did it with Canon, uh, did it with LG, did it with um, FDA and um, the American Egg Board, the Kevin Bacon thing. It is refreshing when you get a CMO like uh, a Fernando who ultimately is just on the same page and gets it at, at get-go. But there is something also gratifying about turning a CMO around who doesn't necessarily see the greatness at blush, but then in hindsight ultimately rolls the dice, you earn their trust, and then they get a taste of what can be, and then they want to do it again and again. It almost becomes addictive. Stylistically, just sitting here with you for an hour or so, I mean, you don't you don't come off as a as an overbearing salesman to me. Or do, you, <laughs> do you have sort of an, an anti-salesmanship style about you? Well, I've I've heard, and um, can, other people can attest whether it's true or not. Uh, I don't bullshit. I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. And as a result, I think that hopefully earns trust with clients is that they know that I believe in what I'm saying. And... They also, as you, I think, already stated, uh, talking about uh, the conversation with Fernando and I over the weekend about the fact that we, it says that we both care, is that I do think the fact that I care comes across a lot to clients. And I think at the end of the day, that's that's what they want. And I, I tend to care about the right things. Uh, they see that I'm not so obsessed with awards uh, that I actually care as much about the business as anything. Uh, it's one of the things that actually I told Fernando way back when this whole thing started is I said, listen, I'm probably not going to win you any more awards than Anselmo. I mean, probably no one can. But the difference is, is I will give you an idea that will actually affect your business and win awards. And that's what I've always strived to do. Happen with E-Trade, happen with the Kevin Bacon thing, happen with Canon. And... When you start to build that trust on that level with CMOs, it is invaluable because that's what will enable them to keep their jobs, not just the fame. At Momentum, for I've been in the job for five years as well, and uh, and I've been telling creatives, you know, stick with it. We will have that breakthrough moment. We will have that big global win, um, that award win, and when we do. You're going to enjoy it for about 10 days. <laughs> and then the pressure will be on. And lo and behold, this year it happened. We won our first Grand Prix for Nike. We were very excited. And, you know, Can was, boy, it feels like a world ago. And now it feels like we're on the clock again. And it's a really unfair thing to say. And, and it's unfair for us. And, you know, you, you may win one Grand Prix in your entire career. And if you do, you were touched by the gods. And for Whopper Detour, I mean, that is, you know, that's, a, that's a, an anomalistic success um, it's hard to compare anything to that. You know, most people will never experience success on that level in their careers, and it's not even a fair expectation. So how are we feeling going into 2020? What is sort of your relationship to pressure or your relationship to Encore at this moment? Sure. Uh, I mean, definitely stressed, as you stated. It's a better kind of stress, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. The stress to actually get something out there in the world that – uh, ultimately sh put the agency on the map. Now the stress is, is to show everyone that it wasn't a fluke or a one-hit wonder. Fortunately, we have a lot of good things in the hopper that I'm very excited about for Burger King as well as uh, some other uh, accounts as well that I'm very excited by. But yeah, I mean, I definitely feel the pressure. I would love to 
Um, I don't think do it again because, as you said, winning three Grand Prix and a titanium Grand Prix, no less, is uh, pretty rare in this business. But I would love to be up on stage twice in the next can for two totally different accounts, two totally different projects. So that it shows that it's pervasive throughout the agency, through the culture, and uh, that it's now systemic and we're on our way. I think the other great thing that you know we've experienced, and I, I'm sure you have going for you as well, is you have clients who've maybe been with you for a long time. And that's a really wonderful thing because it's a relationship you can count on. But it can also be problematic because sort of people will only tend to let you do what they've seen you do or they put you in a box or they sort of believe that you're, you're good at one thing and don't really think about you in a different context after a while. So um, I, I have to think it's been exciting for you to have maybe some longstanding clients who said, oh, our, our partners of a decade made that? You know, we want one of the, – the we want one of those two phenomena is, you know, you hope to put yourself in that position. But then you also are also simultaneously trying to remind a client, like, the way that we got to that thing – is by not trying to compare it to anything else. You know, it's a it's a mindset versus a, a an equation. Um, but have you started to feel some of that co- coming from you know from longstanding clients of maybe looking at you a little bit differently? Oh, for sure, from longstanding clients and new clients alike. Everybody pretty much wants their Whopper Detour now. Yeah, yeah. Do people just say it like that? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, we. I walk. I I can even top that. I walked out of the the show. With the Grand Prix in my hand, and our CCO, my CCO, excuse me, my CEO was uh, was walking, and we were just going to go get a, a cocktail, and and he goes, "Yep, I was just on the phone with uh, one of our clients. You know, what is our Nike church for them?" I go, "Dude, I haven't even had one sip of rosé. The, <laughs> the 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 ceremony is still going on. We left early because we can't sit there anymore, and we're already fucking doing this. Like, you got to just give me not even a day, give me an hour before we start doing this. So, uh, it's a good thing." Um, okay, so as we wrap up here, uh, by day, you're Ari Halper, CCO. By night, you're the ferocious foodie. <laughs> Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Although right now it's a defunct blog uh, that I do for a food blog. I ultimately started it. It's ferociousfoodie.com? Ferociousfoodie.com. Uh, there's still a lot of reviews on there, but I haven't been adding to it in some time because things have just gotten so crazy busy. But – uh, it started many years ago, like I uh, say like five years ago, maybe six even at this point, uh, because everyone would come to me and ask me for restaurant recommendations when I was a gray. Everyone. They would come to me like, listen, I got this client I need to take out. Can you give me some ideas on restaurants? It's your passion. Right. And I would have to tell them like, you know, well, what kind of uh, food do they like? What kind of ambiance do you want? What neighborhood do you want? People would come up to me. I want to propose to my girlfriend. Where should I take her? And I, I love to eat out and eat out at a ton of different restaurants. And I remember, I don't know, sort of like a savant somehow, remember every dish at every restaurant and compare them against each other, et cetera. So every single time I was eating up all this all this time to write up what uh, my thoughts and recommendations were. So I started the blog so that people could ultimately just go and I, I would say, listen, why don't you just look up what it is you, you want, what neighborhood you want, what cuisine you want. It's all collated by that. You can search by all those things and you'll see and then you can find it. You don't have to bother me anymore. Yeah. No, I, I mean I, I bring it up and I don't just bring it up out of novelty. I bring it up because, you know, I I really feel like in our industry, you know, we're we're blessed to be in a creative industry, but so much of our creative creativity is attached to, you know, collaboration compromise. And I don't say those as bad words. It's just it's part of the job. Um, And I think it's really important that creative people have an outlet that's something that just belongs to them. There's no groupthink. There's no meetings. The decision on on word choice uh, or or opinion is mine and mine only. And and I don't owe anyone an explanation for why. And as I was looking at your blog a little bit last night, like it is a great expression in creative writing as well. And your passion jumps off the page. And you know, no one makes you do it. It's something that belongs to you. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I do love it. And it's very cathartic. And it counteracts all the misinformation on Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the way to c- cap off that uh, that portion is to ask you, 
you're on death row, presumably for a crime you didn't commit, but there will be no, um, the governor's not stepping in tomorrow is your last day. But this is a weird death row sentence where they're allowing you a, a flight anywhere in the world to have one final meal. What is your death row restaurant? So my wife would probably kill me because I always choose someplace new over someplace I've already been. All right. Uh, I would probably choose Alinea in Chicago because I've never been. I always like to try something new over something I've already been, even though the place I've already been may be tried and true and unbelievable and the best meal I've ever had. I still always crave to try someplace I haven't been. One last new experience before lethal injection tomorrow at 5 a.m. Smart. Exactly. Uh, and I end every one of these conversations with the same two questions. The first is, in a presentation of your work to a client at any point in your career, what is the most horrifying or, or offensive response you've ever gotten to an idea that you presented? Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I, I don't want to – do I have to call out the brand or no? No. Okay, good. All right. So – I mean it's encouraged, but you don't have to. I'll say it's a cheese brand. <laughs> cheese, that's all I'll say. And we were talking about how cheese is such a, an emotional – Thing. I mean, everybody loves cheese and you melt it and the gooey and pizza and all the different forms that it comes in, even just a cheese stick slice on a sandwich. And we wanted to bring it to a much more emotional space. And we presented a few campaigns that brought much more emotionality to it as opposed to just them talking about it from a very functional heritage place. It was very staid and boring. Had been saying the same message for decades and nothing different. And so let's make people feel for the brand and this product that they love. And the client says back to me, point blank, we are not an emotional brand. <laughs> I was like, okay, why would you want to be an emotionless brand? Yeah. <laughs> so you've you've been did he let you talk for 45 minutes? I mean you, you I was as you were presenting it to me just now I'm like he's right. Let's go <laughs> fucking call the people at Baby Bell and take whatever this idea was. Did he let you go for a while before he shut you down with a sentence or did he basically shut down the presentation before it started? Uh it was a she and no. Uh she let me finish the presentation and then ultimately said, "Yeah, we're just not an emotional brand." Yeah. Okay. Agree to disagree, and I guess we won't be working together. Yeah. Um, and the final question is called the one that got away. Again, it can be from any point in your career. What is that one idea that you loved that for whatever reason it just never got made, but it still occupies a place in your heart? You still just randomly think about it before you fall asleep at night. Sure. It's very funny that you asked this question. So um, this is actually a question that I've asked every, in every single interview for, I'll say, last 10 to 15 years, which is, tell me the best idea you ever did that never got made. And I call it the trick question because some people get flustered by it and don't know what they're going to say. I obviously am not going to get flustered by it because- I'm so I excited by your time. answer, yeah. So the first was for World League Baseball. And I don't know if you remember its existence. It came out I don't even God, I love baseball and I've never heard of that. I think it came out in like 2005 or 6. And basically it was like the World Cup for baseball. Oh, sure. Okay. All yeah, the yeah. different countries yeah. would play. Yeah. So they wanted a Super Bowl spot. And we were brought in because the current spot on the table that they were about to buy was relatively lame and – it was. It literally – it got all, uh, the story of about something getting away. The spot that actually wound up running, which was the spot that we were supposed to top, wound up being uh, in the bottom five of the Super Bowl that year. The spot that we presented, uh, you open up in the outback in Australia and a kangaroo is just hopping across the plains, stops, eats some grass or whatever and all of a sudden an earthquake starts to happen and – out of the earth comes this giant red like thing that looks like a worm from – ever see the movie Dune? Yeah. Like out of Dune comes up and flies over the horizon and plunges back into the earth. We cut to uh, Aztec temples in Mexico, say, uh, you know, towering over the trees. 
all of a sudden the trees start rumbling, birds scatter. This thing comes flying up over the temple, plunges back down into the trees. We cut to the Rialto Bridge in Venice. Out of the canal, this thing shoots up, knocks back the gondolas, plunges back in. We cut to Fifth Avenue, New York City. Again, thing busts out of the pavement, flips over cabs and everything, and goes plunging back into First Avenue. And then finally, we cut to the Great Wall of China. And again, this thing goes up over the wall and then back and then back again. And it's like almost slaloming back and forth on top of the wall. And as this continues, we start to rise up into the air, pulling away further and further and further to see from outer space that these are the red stitches stitching into the earth, turning it into a giant baseball. And it says, you know, on March 3rd, the world will be playing baseball. Will you be watching? Love it. I take it back. You're a great salesman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ari, congrats on all the success uh, that you and FCB have enjoyed over this past year. Obviously, really well-earned and well-deserved. And I've admired your work for a long time, and I've been jealous of your work for a long time. So Thank I you. really appreciated this time together, man. Thanks. Likewise. It was awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much to Ari Halper. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe, rate it, write a nice review, say how much you love it, share it with a colleague or friend. Until we talk again, peace.